Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. That's right, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and on this edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's take a deep dive look into some purportedly real UFO documents. You'll get what I mean in just a moment, but first, as always, shout-outs. Shout-outs to Aaron, Aaron, Ah Monsters, Lauren and David, Alicia, Amber, Andrew, Angie, April, Ariel, Seth, Audra, Austin, Autumn, Bill, Bob, Brandon, Brett, Carolyn, Carrie, Christine, Chuck, Cindy, Cole, Dan, Daniel, Devin, Dill, Donald, Dorian, welcome back, Elliot, Erica, Aaron, Fabian, Harvey, Heidi, I, Isabel, J-Mark, Jade, Jaime, Jason, Jeff, Jeff, Jenny, Jennifer, Jared, Jerry, Jim, Joe, Joanne, Joe, John, Joshua, Juliana, Catherine, Kelly, Kelsey, Kimberly, Kira, Kyle, Lash, Laura, 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 Lauren, and that's Lauren Mangano, who Lauren and Phil are the best. Lauren McCune, hey, howdy, hi, Lawrence, Leo, Lindsay, Lionel, Lorraine, M. Caballero, Martin, Matt, Matt, Megan, Eric, Milo, Nanashi, Nick, Pablo, Paula, Rachel, Reed, Rosa, Russell, Sarah, Sarah, Sean Bishop, Shelly, Sonny, Suzanne, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, Tanya, Trey, Troy, and Veronica. You're going to notice there are a lot of new names. I cannot thank you guys enough. The support that I've been getting online, on Facebook, on Instagram, everywhere, messages, emails, is amazing, is incredible. There was a lot of people that said that these shoutouts were a waste of time and it takes forever and blah, blah, blah. Sorry, but again, without these people, without the patrons, there would be no... Paranormal Almanac. It takes a minute and a half. I just timed it. It's a minute and a half from my welcome to the end of the names of the patrons. Without them, again, there would be no Paranormal Almanac. All right, let's get right into Paranormal News. There's a, this is a packed episode, so let's get right on into it. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Paranormal News. The first story is, which bottle found in Virginia dates to the Civil War? A glass bottle filled with rusted nails may not sound like much of an archaeological find, but this Civil War artifact could represent a type of talisman that was popular for warding off evil spirits, and it's called a witch bottle. Researchers found the bottle at a site known as Redoubt 9, a fortification built in 1861 by Confederate troops and later occupied by Union forces. Remains of the defensive structure lie on a highway median between exits 238 and 242 on Interstate 64 if you're ever in York County, Virginia. Now, the bottle discovered near a hearth measures roughly 5 inches tall, 3 inches wide, and was made in Pennsylvania. This suggests that it was placed there by a Union soldier, likely at a time when the fort was occupied by the Pennsylvania Cavalry. 
When archaeologists recovered the bottle, we thought it was unusual, but we weren't sure what it was. There was a lot of casualties and fear of this period. The Union troops were an occupying force in enemy territory throughout most of the war, so there were plenty of bad spirits and energy to ward off. Hidden witch bottles dating to centuries ago have been found in concealed homes in London. I've talked about these before. The practice originated in England and then traveled to North America with British immigrants, and it persisted on both sides of the Atlantic into the 20th century. So basically, if a person thought that they were being cursed, by a witch usually, they would fill a glass or ceramic bottle with bent pins and nails, sometimes adding bits of human hair or even urine to it. Then the victim would bury the bottle under or near the hearth of the house, and the heat of the hearth would animate the pins or iron nails and force the witch to break the link or suffer the consequences. It is said that once the evildoer was dead, the bottle would break. Approximately 200 witch bottles have been found in the UK. Fewer than a dozen have turned up in the US. So finding one of these is a rare item for archaeologists. And they found a broken bottle with a bunch of nails in it. Hence, a witch bottle. Glitch in the Matrix? Floating error message in the sky. Now, this story is actually from 2009, but it's actually just come to light fairly recently. Shots from Odessa, Ukraine on a foggy night when electronic billboard crashed displaying a Windows 98 error message that appeared to float in the night sky like a digital sign. And they're right, I'll post photos of this up on uh, Facebook. So there's actually two photos of the error message just kind of floating there in space. And then one of a, I don't know, some kind of advertisement with a phone number, again, floating out in space. So I'll throw them up on... Uh, on the Facebook page, nothing paranormal really about it other than the fact that it looks like a huge glitch in the matrix. Up next in paranormal news, Black Triangle UFO sightings around the planet span decades. Eyewitnesses all over the country reporting glimpses of something huge, large, dark, and mysterious in the skies above big cities and busy highways. The crafts are often described as triangular in shape, silent in their movements, and of unknown origin. So these black triangles or boomerang-shaped objects, some larger than any known aircraft, have been documented, even filmed, over cities all across North America as well as in Europe. Military jets that scramble to go after them are launched on several occasions, top-of-the-line military aircraft against these things, and they were left in the dust. So whatever these black triangles are, they're fast, they're mysterious, they're huge, and as of right now, they're UFOs. Strange night flashes, vibrations, and humming noise in Ohio town spark talks of UFOs. A strange series of color flashes that turn the night sky reddish in Bethel, Ohio, has gotten international attention. So far, nobody seems to know what's doing it, even after a week of debate. A doorbell video posted on Facebook by Tim Walker shows a series of rapid flashes that changed in color and size over 20 seconds from red to a white, nope, from a white to a red that filled the horizon. It was recorded January 12th, just before 7 p.m., as Walker was rolling a trash bin outside his home about 30 miles east of, uh, southeast of Cincinnati. Anybody else see this tonight? He wrote on Facebook, The sky was flashing pink and purple, super bright. Thought it might be lightning, but it's fairly cold, and there was no thunder. It was crazy. Again, super bright. He goes on to say that he and his daughter were both frightened by the flashes, which he said got brighter and brighter. The family lives next to a 4,800-acre state park where quiet is the norm after sunset. The first thing that came to mind was what, was what just happened with Iran, and I thought it might be a nuclear explosion. 
It was bright and that powerful. I was in the army and it reminded me of phosphorescent flares we use that light up the whole skies. I was scared. I thought it was an explosion, so it made me really nervous. This is how every alien world domination movie starts. So many people are posting about it in Bethel and Amelia. Some people said their power even flickered on and off. Now again, there's no explanation as to what is doing this in Bethel, Ohio. And if I can find the video, maybe it's this one. Let me click. Oh, yeah. So it's a guy walking out, throwing out trash. You can hear the trash can rumbling by. But in the background, he's not wrong. The sky is flashing purple and white and red and fast, too. And they both just stopped. He just drops the trash can, and they definitely look panicked. Yeah, no, that's a very, very interesting video. Like I said, I'll post that up on the Facebook as well. No word on what it could be. Next up in paranormal news, another Bigfoot sighting on Washington highways, this one with video. Bigfoot is on the move in the mountains of Washington if the highway cameras are to be believed. Two days after the video of the Bigfoot up on the mountain, another video has been found. This 31-second clip recorded on Interstate 90 Wildlife Bridge shows a bulky humanoid figure striding across the snow before disappearing just over the crest. It stops and momentarily looks back. Now, again, I've looked at this video. To me, it seems like someone's just having fun with all of the cameras that they know are um, in and around this area. It doesn't really look like a Bigfoot to me, but again, I'll let you guys be the judge. I'll post this one online as well. See what you guys think. Do you think if it's a Bigfoot or not? Sticking with Bigfoot, Bigfoot Hunter says evidence is there. Finding Bigfoot Star speaks at Starved Rock Lodge. And he says, uh, this is James Bobo Fay, star of Finding Bigfoot. He stopped at the Starved Rock Country Saturday as the keynote speaker during a paranormal symposium at the Starved Rock Lodge. Now, he lives in Eureka, California. He spoke of his many hunts, which were the focus of his cable channel, blah, blah, blah. He spoke of his show, basically, in hunting for Bigfoot. I, he says, and he says, I believe there are more photos and videos or unknown creatures which have yet to be released for various reasons, including personal privacy. He goes on to say that there are many sightings of Bigfoot sighted from hunters in southern Illinois. Among those in attendance at the lodge presentation was 21-year-old Lily Knapp of Joliet, of Joliet, and she says, I was a fan of Finding Bigfoot show, and I've always been intrigued by the paranormal stories of the creature. According to the investigator for the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, the woods on both sides of Seneca, near the Illinois River, have become the home of Bigfoot-type creatures. In fact, in a 2005 Times article, one sighting east of Seneca in Grundy County involved two campers who had a dark evening encounter with a creature near their campsite close enough that they could hear it breathe and pick up an odor that was a cross between garbage and a musk cologne. By firelight, they could see the creature was wide and about eight feet tall. As it prowled nearby, the men became scared and crawled away. So apparently the hunt is on, but there are Bigfoot, multiple Bigfoot apparently, that live right there. That live right there on both sides of Seneca near the Illinois River. So if you're in that area, keep an eye out for Bigfoot. If you see him, definitely take some video. And as always, don't fucking shoot Bigfoot. And finally, in paranormal news... Pilot captures a clearly visible UFO flying at high altitude. The Viva Air pilot, during a commercial flight over Columbia, noticed a strange object flying to the plane 
and he decided to record it. Now in the video, we see that the cube-like UFO passes the plane at a safe distance. Unlike any known aircraft, these objects have been sighted overcoming the Earth's gravity with no visible means of propulsion. They like they lack any flights they also lack any flight surfaces such as wings. If an aircraft travels faster than the speed of sound, it typically leaves signatures like vapor trails and sonic booms. This type of UFO account notes the lack of such evidence. And like it says, there's a video, so let's watch it now. And I actually waited to watch this video while I was on air. So now that we're so now that I'm recording, let me watch this video and tell you what I see, and I'll make sure I post it up on uh, on Facebook as well. Really annoying music. Uh, it's definitely a pilot. Definitely a big commercial airline. Oh yeah. So there's a small black dot. It's cruising by. Seems to be going really freaking fast too. Now normally I would say those are just balloons or a balloon, but this thing is booking. I don't know what to. I'll be honest. I gotta stop this freaking drum beat. Um, I gotta be honest. I don't know what to make of this video. It does seem like there is something going very fast. Now it could be just high altitude balloons caught in some wind stream. That's very possible. It seems to be a dark gray object. Seems to be round with little protuberance around it. Maybe three or four on the sides. I don't, I'll be honest. I don't know what to make of this thing. It is bizarre. And I'll definitely... Oh, it is cubed. Oh, it does have a cube shape to it as well. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't know what to make of this video. I'm going to throw this one up on Facebook. This is the only one of the paranormal news right now that's really intriguing to me. I'd love to get to the bottom of it, but I just don't know what to make of it. All right, so that about does it for paranormal news. But just a reminder, I'm going to be at the Haunted Souls Bazaar. And that's on May 2nd. It's an event. It's going to be very cool at the Heritage Square Museum, 3800 Homer Street, Los Angeles, California. So if you guys have a uh, paranormal story and you don't want to send it in to me, you don't want to email it to me, but you're going to be here, I'll be there. I'll be recording everybody's paranormal experience. Or if you just want to come by to say hi, I think that'd be fantastic. As always, I would love to meet each and every one of you guys. Again, I can't thank you all for your support. So let's take a quick break. Be right back to the topic at hand. Alrighty, we are back. And like I was saying earlier, this is a bit of a different episode. Because even though it is technically an all-debunking episode, in a certain way, but it has a lot of twists and turns, like a good X-Files episode. And I'm, you'll, get, you'll see what I'm saying in just a minute. It really does have a lot of very bizarre twists and turns. Now, some of you that know these documents are going to dismiss me and this episode right away. But seriously... Just stay and listen. If you're so sure about them being real, then listening to me talk about them won't change your mind. And I have to say, I'm not trying to stir up any more controversy about these documents. In fact, I'm trying to squash some of it. I'm trying to get to the bottom of these documents the best way I know how, which is with the evidence at hand. And a lot of people before me have done a lot of research on these documents, and you're going to hear a lot of it. There's going to be a lot of details, a lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of information. Just stick with me. I promise you at the end of it, it'll all become clear. Like I said, it's a very fact and name and date heavy episode. I get that. But again, just stick with me. So what the hell am I talking about? Well, they're known by a few different names. 
Psalm 101. That's S-O-M 101. M-J-12. But most commonly, they're known as the Majestic 12 Documents. So let's start at the beginning. And no, I am not starting with the earliest date on the documents themselves, which is 1947. No, no. I'm going to start where the documents started. The real beginning. In December of 1984, that's right, a document that goes all the way back to Roswell wasn't, quote, found until 1984. The story starts with documentary producer Jaime Shandera, and he says he was reading a magazine when a mysterious envelope was dropped through his mail slot at home. This plain manila envelope had a New Mexico postmark and contained just one thing, a roll of undeveloped photo film. Now, Jaime, who had no connections to the UFO community or actually any interest in it, says he took that roll of film to be developed, and what he got back was weird. Now, his word was mysterious, but it's just weird. So he takes this weird film with him to dinner. And it's a dinner with his friend Bill Moore, who, if you don't know who he is, he is a conspiracy theorist that wrote a couple of not well-recepted books on UFOs and the Philadelphia Experiment. Now, let me pause right here to say, it's pretty fucking convenient that Jaime received something in his mail slot anonymously, and he also happens to have a friend who knew where he lived that just happened to love conspiracy theories, urban legends, and known BS about UFOs. And that person also wrote two books right before this happened that were slammed by UFO, quote, experts. I looked into his stuff, and let me just say, in my opinion and my opinion only, bullshit to his books. Now, I'm also not the first person to think this, but me personally... After, redo after doing all of the research I did, I personally think that Bill Moore was the culprit behind the Majestic 12 documents and them getting to Jaime. But let me continue with the story first. All right, so the photos, once he got them developed, he noticed that the photos were eight pages of highly classified documents that confirmed Roswell happened. That's right, the big smoking gun that every UFO nut, whatever you want to call us, wants to hear that the government admits that Roswell was a real UFO crash and a cover-up. These are highly classified documents, internal documents that should never have seen the light of day that say, yes, Roswell was a real UFO crash and a cover-up. And... And the documents were also about the people behind the cover-up, how to cover up future UFO crashes, and also a number of other UFO encounters from 1947 into the 1950s. But for a lot of people, the main bombshell from the Majestic 12 documents, those eight pages, was that President Truman had appointed a committee of scientists and government and military officials known heretofore as the Majestic Twelve. The members included Dr. Donald Menzel, a theoretical astrophysicist and big-time, big-time UFO skeptic. This guy wrote three books debunking UFOs in every way, shape, and form. 
And even though this guy said all UFOs were bullshit, he actually had his own UFO experience. Because on March 3rd, 1955, he saw what he said was a flying saucer while returning from the North Pole on the daily Air Force weather Ptarmigan flight. However you want to say it, Ptarmigan flight. Even though he himself said it was a metallic UFO, he later said that it was just a mirage of Sirius, which, as I'm sure you're all saying out loud right now, is a bullshit excuse. So this guy, Dr. Donald Menzel, he became the UFO skeptic of his time. This guy was the UFO skeptic at that time in the 50s. The members also supposedly included Dr. Vannevar Bush, head of the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development during World War II, retired admiral named Sidney Sowers, who just happened to become the very first director of the CIA. Pause time. Spoiler, I will be pausing a lot. I think it's really smart to include such a diverse group of men in this. If it was real and also... If these papers were bullshit like they are, remember that. These papers are bullshit. But either way, whether they're real or fake, adding Menzel was brilliant. Here's a guy that was very vocal about UFOs being faked. And in a 1968 symposium, he talked about having full access to all military files about UFOs. And that they were all fake. So if you were going to fake a UFO document, he's the perfect guy to add to it because of how vocal he was about his access and his denial of UFOs themselves. Or, if they are real, he's the perfect person to have out there debunking stuff while he was secretly working for Majestic 12. Alright, but seriously, this whole thing is bullshit. Just remember that, okay? Alright, let's keep going. So, these Majestic 12 documents, we find out that there is this team that President Truman put together, a appointed a committee of the Majestic 12. So for the next year, both Bill and Jaime tried to prove that these documents were real. And actually spent the next decade really trying to prove they were real. But for that first year, as they were trying to verify anything in these documents, word starts to get out about them. And ufologists are all weighing in on these MJ-12 documents they keep hearing whispers about. Because Bill and Jaime are pretty vocal about, hey, we've got these things, we're trying to prove it. Do you know anything about this guy? Do you know anything about this date? Do you know anything about this content? So word is getting out. So let's get to those early experts that were looking into them. Like Philip Class. Right now you're probably asking yourself, who is Philip Class? Well... He's a skeptic that was influential for one main thing for me, for Kurt, for me personally. Because he was investigating the Exeter, New Hampshire UFO cases, and he noticed something really interesting. A large percentage of them happened around power lines, and he determined that something that hadn't been proven at the time, a thing called ball lightning, existed and could explain what people were seeing. And guess what? He was right about plasma or ball lightning, whatever you want to call it and instantly became known as the UFO debunker of that time. His time being the mid-80s, just to keep it clear. So now we have Philip Class, another UFO debunker, 
very scientific about his methods, very popular in the mid 80s because he was scientifically researching UFOs. Not everything was real and he knew it. So good old debunker Philip started looking into the MJ into the MJ12 papers and noticed some things that again were proven right. He noticed incorrect ranks assigned to the military members of the groups in the documents. Whoops. He noticed that the documents didn't match known formatting from known real declassified documents. Whoops. He noticed odd verbiage, including the term media, was used and not press, as was customary at the time. Whoops. All of this was true. And all of this make these documents look very, very, very suspicious. But wait, there's more. Carl freaking Sagan had this to say about the MJ-12 documents. Where the MJ-12 documents are most vulnerable and suspect is exactly on this question of provenance. The evidence miraculously dropped on a doorstep like something out of a fairy tale story, perhaps the shoemaker and the elves. Basically what he's saying is, these things just appeared at this guy Jaime's door. They just popped into the mail slot in a little manila envelope, again, very X-Files-like, and he's right. And for me personally, my favorite one, while researching this episode, this very episode you're listening to right now, I came across a gentleman named Fred Sprinkle who noticed something about the MJ-12 documents way back in 2017. Something that I never would have picked up on. The font. Yeah, that's right. Even the font is wrong. Now, he said, quote, As a graphic designer, the first time I saw it, I knew something was wrong. I could feel the hoax before I knew why. Why? Because the typefaces are all wrong. In fact, we only need to look at one of the typefaces, Helvetica. The all-caps title here is Helvetica, released in 1957. And he's right. The document, the capital, the all-caps title on that document is Helvetica. The Psalm 101 document has a purported published date of 1954. But, again, this is Fred speaking, but to the best of my knowledge... The secondary title font, Helvetica, was not invented until 1957, three years after these documents were typed up. And it didn't even break out of European usage until later, except perhaps in some hipster art scenes. Again, this is all him, Fred, talking. Also, government agencies are usually at least 10 or 20 years behind popular typographic trends, so this alone makes it very unlike, very unlikely. Compare the style between Psalm 101 and the authentic 1950s documents, documents we know are real that have since been declassified. And he says they are very different. I guess Psalm 101 was created sometime after 1975. The general design vibe feels very late 80s or even 90s. And that big Psalm 101 title feels almost computer generated. And guess what? I looked into this. He's right, too. Helvetica wasn't released until 1957. Yet these documents, dated 1954, are using Helvetica. All right. 
Now let's jump back to 1985. Did I mention there's going to be a lot of jumping in this one? No? Well, there is. All right, we're in 1985. Jaime and Bill, and now another well-known ufologist, is in the picture. That man? Stanton Friedman. Yes, that Stanton Friedman. Ever see a documentary about UFOs? You've probably seen Stanton Friedman. Now, they're all trying to figure out, and I'm using air quotes as big as I can right now, they're all trying to figure out what's real when they receive a series of anonymous postcards. Yep, more anonymous X-Files type stuff, this bullshit. Now, these messages lead them to the National Archives, where they steal the Declaration of Independence because there's a treasure map on the back of it. Oh, wait, no. Um, it's not quite that cool. No, they, they, get a, they get these postcards. That lead them to the National Archives. And there... After a few days of searching, they find a document in the just-declassified boxes of Record Group 341. But those documents should have been in another box not connected to it. So, again, likely planted there. And this document became known as the Cutler-Twining Memo. This document states that the Memorandum for General Twining, subject MSC slash MJ-12, oh, there it is, Special Studies Project. The president has decided that MJ-12 SSP briefing should take place during the already scheduled White House meeting of July 16th, rather than following it as previously intended. More precise arrangements will be explained to you upon your arrival. Please alter your plans accordingly. Your concurrence in the above change of arrangements is assumed. Robert Cutler, Special Assistant to the President. So, here is another document which seems to confirm MJ-12 that just mysteriously happened to be hinted about by these anonymous postcards that just kind of popped in. Now, there are no word whether Jaime, Bill, and Stanton Friedman were all at home at the same time. They're all sitting there when these postcards came in? Or were these postcards mailed to them? Which I'm guessing that's the case. Because again, in my opinion, I think Bill is the culprit. He's trying to confirm, because there's a lot of word getting out. Is the are the, MJ, are the MJ-12 documents real or are they fake? So he goes, well, here's another document that just happened to be slipped in with all these recently real, recently declassified documents. And this document is going to connect the dots for MJ-12 believers, if you will. All right, so again, we got this other document. It seems to confirm MJ-12. And the one thing to note about this memo is that the last line matches the wording of another memo found in the Library of Congress in the Twining Papers. So... For you skeptics out there, for you believers out there, if this is a forgery, they at least knew enough to get that last line perfect. Your concurrence in the above change of arrangements is assumed. That line is something that they found in a lot of other real Robert Cutler papers. And you got to admit it, that last line is oddly worded and not something you'd hear every day. But... This is another document, when you really look into it, that has serious flaws on it, including a top-secret restricted information marking on it, but the problem here is the U.S. government didn't start using that until the Nixon era, so it shouldn't be on the document. 
Boom. Strike one for this document. The document doesn't have the official government letterhead or the watermark. Strike two for this document being real. The Eisenhower Library examined its collections of the Cutler papers and all doc known to be made by Cutler. I'm talking real documents known as a fact to be made by Cutler. And they have an eagle watermark in the onion skin carbon paper. Strike three, this one doesn't have that. Now, unless whoever made this forgery scoured the Eisenhower library files for days, they wouldn't know that it should have had this on the document. Also, in case you needed a strike four, the onion skin paper itself didn't match the known onion skin papers that Cutler used at the time. It's a small detail, but it's an important one. So this document already has four strikes against it for being a fake document. But we haven't even looked at the content yet. So let's look at the content for a second. There's a date that's mentioned there. July 16th. Well, guess what? When ufologist asked the Eisenhower Library what was on the president what was on President Eisenhower's schedule for July 16th, they got this response. President Eisenhower's appointment book contains no entries for a special meeting on July 16th, 1954, which might have included a briefing on MJ-12. Even when the president had, quote, off-the-record meetings, the appointment books contain entries indicating the time of the meetings and the participants. The Declassification Office of the National Security Council has informed us that no record of any declassification action have been taken on this memorandum or any other documents on this alleged project. Robert Cutler, at the direction of President Eisenhower, was visiting overseas military installations on the day he supposedly issued this memorandum. On July 14, 1954, when Robert Cutler supposedly was writing this, he wasn't even in the country. It would have been on his return from a trip visiting overseas military installations. So, yeah, strike five now? He wasn't even there. So even if you believe that the government wouldn't have added this, it's so secret that they wouldn't add it at all. Well, Cutler wasn't even there to write it, this document is fake. There is a ton of evidence that this document is fake. Even if there was a secret meeting, it would have been notated that President Eisenhower had a secret meeting. Nothing else about it, but at least that would have been notated. So yeah, a bunch of people with more time on their hands than me have already gone to great lengths to see if this document was real and well, based on everything that I can find, the Cutler Twining document is also a forgery. A forgery that tried to make the MJ-12 documents look legit, but actually just, ca just cast more doubts about it. Alrighty, let's go see what Philip Class thought about it. Class found, again, that Robert Cutler was actually out of the country on the date he supposedly wrote the Cutler Twining memos. And that the Truman signature, this is really important, this is strike, I don't know, six, wherever we're at. Truman's signature was, quote, a pasted-on photocopy of a genuine signature, including accidental scratch marks 
from a memo that Truman wrote to Vannevar Bush on October 1st, 1947. Boom, mic drop. Please note, I'm not really going to drop my mic because they're fucking expensive, but without a doubt, the Cutler-Twining memo is fake. The memo that just somehow managed to make its way again to Jaime and Bill and now Stanton Friedman is a fake. Then, in 1986, when an anonymous source told British UFO author Jenny Randalls about the MJ-12 documents, which at this point were the worst kept UFO secret at the time, she didn't care, and she said she wasn't interested. So then in 1987, all of the documents were sent anonymously. Again, who, who could have done it? Who, who, had the, who had them? Who did it? They were sent anonymously to another British UFO author named Timothy Good. Now, he believed them hook, line, and sinker. He thought he had these giant smoking gun that showed that everything is true about Roswell and the UFOs and the president knowing about UFOs, governments around the world knowing about UFOs, what to do if UFOs happen. And he wrote about them in his book, Above Top Secret. So Bill and Jaime said it was time to tell the world what they had talked about basically openly for years. So what they did was, at a UFO convention in 88 or 89, but I'm beginning to think it's 88, they told the world about all of the MJ-12 documents. Let's get back to old Philip Class here. He says, cool, let me see these documents. Oh, I get to read them all? Awesome. And sends a copy of them to the FBI, who, surprise, actually responded with the following. In the report, dated December 1988, they said, The Office of Special Investigations, U.S. Air Force, advised on November 30th, 1988, that the document was fabricated. The document was fabricated. Copies of that document have been distributed to various parts of the United States. The document is completely bogus. And they handwrote bogus. They actually handwrote bogus in big letters across the front of the documents themselves. I know, I know you all are saying, oh, of course they would say that. Why would, why wouldn't they confirm it? You know, why would the government ever say, oh yeah, no, those are real. How'd you get those? Crap. Little photo, little film canister sent to you anonymously. Shit. Well, those are real. You shouldn't have those. Sure. That is true. The government wouldn't confirm it. But it's how they debunked it. The standard way of denial is ignoring the requests for more info or confirmation. Silence is their denial. Every time. But this time, they almost laughed out loud at how absurd these documents look when you know what they're supposed to look like. These documents, on the most cursory of examination by me, looked off, looked wrong. I knew they were fake. And with a little bit of research, as you're hearing, they're fake. So, Dr. Robert Allen Goldberg, in the Roswell chapter of his book, Enemies Within, said, Evidence of malfeasance was plentiful. Critics noted that the date format did not conform to governmental style. The papers carried no, no top-secret registration numbers. Military titles were improperly noted, and signatures appeared to be grafted onto this document. Anachronistic usages like media and impacted 
further betrayed the find. So another guy independently said, nope, there are just too many mistakes on these documents. So I'm going to keep on moving, this time to an interesting theory, a bizarre theory, a scary theory. In 2016, author Brian Dunning on the Skeptoid podcast episode, The Secret History of Majestic 12, said that he doesn't think the papers are just a plain old hoax, but rather, oh, wait, this is tinfoil hat time, so be prepared. We're going down a rabbit hole here now. So this guy, Brian Dunning, says he doesn't think that these papers are just a plain old hoax, but rather are likely part of a disinformation campaign of the U.S. government meant to deflect attention from secret Air Force projects and discredit ufologists. And he said he had good reasonings to think this because of one man, a man named Paul Benowitz. Now, I was going to do an entire episode about Paul Benowitz. I've mentioned him before in another episode, but this is the perfect episode to really talk about Paul Benowitz. Paul was the owner of Thunder Scientific in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which built sensitive instrumentation for people like the Air Force. And since he was building the equipment, Paul admitted he loved using it on the Air Force themselves. Paul was a ufologist. He was convinced that aliens were living inside the Archuleta Mesa. If you haven't heard that episode, I covered it on a previous episode. That's when I said I mentioned him really briefly. Uh, you should listen to that episode as well if you want to get a backstory on what the Archuleta Mesa is. But what Paul would do is he would fly his small plane all around, over and over again, like grid-like patterns, and take hundreds of pictures of things that he believed were alien. Now, I'm going to pause right here to say... I looked at some of these. There's a lot of nope involved in this. He was definitely a hardcore tinfoil hat believer. He thought that everything was an alien or UFO or crashed UFO. But there does seem to be some evidence that he actually took photos of UAVs and other test flights of aircraft that still haven't been declassified. So even in his insanity, if you will, I don't want to call it insanity. That's mean. You'll find out why in a minute. Even in his tinfoil hat, even with his tinfoil hat and really paranoid kind of things, he was taking pictures of absolutely nothing that was weird. He did catch some stuff that is still yet to be declassified. Then, one day in 1985, Paul Benowitz photographed what turned out to be a crashed Delta Wing aircraft, and he reported it to Bill Moore. He, sa he said, I've got photos of a UFO that crashed. I took the photos. Here they are, Bill. Take a look at this. Bill handed the photos over to the AFOSI. That's the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Why? Well, it was either trying to force them to say, yes, this was an actual UFO, or some say he did it to tattle on Paul or I'll have an explanation for you in just a minute. But anyhow, Paul trusted Bill. Bill took those photos, and what he found out was this was a highly classified aircraft. The Air Force were pissed or embarrassed or both that this photo was ever taken, so they had to go on the offensive. All right, so what happens next comes from those people who are still with us. 
So again, we're gonna go down that tinfoil hat thing. Just stay with me for a little bit longer. I know this rabbit hole is really detailed. Stick with me. According to Bill Moore, the Air Force contacted Paul and said, yep, you've got photos of a downed UFO. They even scattered more wreckage around it with, quote, aliens and extraterrestrial things, took them over it to take more photos, then went on to tell them all sorts of stories about the underground aliens in Archuleta Mesa. Now, Bill went on to say that part of his job was to essentially drive Paul crazy, which, surprise, is exactly what happened. Paul had a full psychological breakdown. He got increasingly more paranoid. He was already paranoid to begin with. And sadly, Paul died insane. Essentially, all of this was the way to discredit not only Paul's spy photos and what he had heard and seen, but also a way to discredit ufologists in general. And there's some serious evidence for it. All right, so this seems to be a confirmed... So, all right, this was confirmed by the U.S. Air Force of Special Investigations, Richard Doty, who claimed that in the 1980s, he was tasked with hoaxing documents and feeding false information to UFO researchers including Paul Benowitz. And good old Bill Moore says, in early September 1980, I was approached by a well-placed individual within the intelligence community who claimed to be directly connected to high-level project dealing with UFOs, Richard Doughty. This individual told me that he spoke for a small group of similar individuals who were uncomfortable with the government's continuing cover-up of the truth and indicated that he and his group would like to help me with my research into the subject in the hope and expectations that I might be able to help them find a way to change the prevailing policy and get the facts to the public without breaking any laws in the process. The man who acted as liaison between this group and myself was an Air Force Office of Special Investigations agent named Richard Doty. I knew I was being recruited, but at that point I had no idea for what. Well, it soon became very apparent to Bill that he was expected to supply information to Richard Doughty about Paul Benowitz. And in exchange, he was going to give he was going to be given sensitive or classified information on UFOs. So Bill jumped in, hook, line, and sinker, whatever you want to say, and basically did what they wanted. He discredited Paul, drove Paul crazy, discredited ufologists in general discredited real photos of real spy planes that the Air Force didn't want out there. He decided to play along. He said that he did it so that uh, the government agents, he could learn more about the disinformation process by witnessing it firsthand. I don't buy that at all. I think Bill was fooled by Richard Doty and is now kind of retconning why he did it. Now he's saying, well, I did it because I wanted to see how they did the disinformation process. No, he believed he was going to be getting UFO documents from the government themselves in exchange for fucking up this guy's life. He is rewriting history to me, but it's what he said. Before I move away from Bill, during his 1989 confession to the MUFON conference, he says, Disinformation is a strange and bizarre game. Those who play it are completely aware that an operation success is dependent upon dropping false information upon a target or mark 
in such a way that the person will accept it as truth and will repeat it and even defend it to others as if it was true. Once the information is believed, the work of counterintelligence is complete. They can simply withdraw the confidence that the dirty work of spreading their poisonous seeds will be done by others. And I gotta say, he's right. Again, I think he's rewriting history. But all of this seems to be disinformation from the government given to individuals that they know would regurgitate that information ad nauseum to other UFO nuts, whatever you want to call them. So whether these documents were just made, were just faked to make some ufologist famous, like Bill Moore, or fake as in false information, either way you look at it, the Majestic 12 documents are most certainly fakes. And boy, did they do their jobs well in either case. It pitted ufologist against ufologist. It drove one man insane and killed him. It also discredited some ufologists, again, to the point of insanity. It's crazy to think with all of the information, all the people scouring every font and date and person mentioned, the paper that they were written on, that some people still ignore all of this data, all of this evidence, and won't even think for a second that the MJ-12 papers are fake. Just in case I need to say it, Yes, I believe they are fake. I can't say why they were faked, but I lean towards Bill creating them to further his career or Bill was given them by the government in his mind to further his career. But again, that's just my guess. With this episode, it is definitely a make-up-your-own-mind kind of topic. Also, in case I need to say this, yes, I believe in UFOs. There is very little doubt in anybody that UFOs are bullshit. UFOs are real. The government goes to pretty far lengths to cover them up still. The reason I feel inclined to say this, this very obvious statement, is because a lot of sites think that if you discount the Majestic 12 documents, you either work for the government, which I don't, or you don't believe in UFOs at all. Which, again, I don't understand because, again, we know the government likes to send out false information that benefits them. And, again, just looking at all the data, the MJ-12 documents just don't hold up to scrutiny. So, why, you might be asking, why am I doing a full episode on debunking UFO documents? Well, it's kind of what the whole point of Paranormal Almanac is. I want to get rid of all the bullshit so that what's left is the very real, very incredible, very unexplained things. Things we just can't explain yet, but we will. These MJ-12 documents and documents like them clutter a ton of sites because everybody says, oh, they're real. Oh, they're legit. And these documents prove this, that, and the other. No, you're helping the government when you keep spouting this kind of bullshit, this kind of nonsense. These documents are fake. It is very obvious to determine that these documents are fake. Numerous ways. You don't want to believe me. Believe all these other people that have done the research. The documents just don't hold up. 
I wish they were real. If we had this big smoking gun about Roswell being real, it would be incredible. But, honestly, we don't need that. We all know that something happened in Roswell that has yet to be explained. However far you want to go down that rabbit hole. Some people want to stop right there and say, well, something happened. I'm not saying it was UFO, but something happened. Where other people who have done more research say, yes, a UFO crashed in Roswell. Yes, the government covered it up. Yes, the government flew UFO parts and alien bodies to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base right after Roswell. That's what I believe happened. That's what a lot of people out there believe happened. But regardless, we don't need these MJ-12 documents to say, hey, guess what? The government will cover up UFOs. That happens after almost every UFO crash. The government come in the same way they always do, cordon off the area. Nothing ever happened here. You didn't see anything. They take it away before anybody can get to the evidence. That's true. That is happening. So yeah, even though these documents say that that's how the government's going to cover something up, that's pretty basic. I could write a document, predate it to 1932, and say this is what's going to happen every time there's a UFO crash. The government's supposed to come in, cordon off the area, tell people they didn't see what they thought they saw, and say it was BS about, and then just make up one of the 12 things that they always make up about UFOs. It was a crashed airplane. It was a meteorite. It was a satellite. Whatever. The government know how to cover stuff up. They don't know how to cover it up very well, though. And when they do try to cover it up, what they think is being smart and try to cover it up, their story never holds up. Roswell, again, the perfect case for that. The perfect case study for that. None of that made any sense. If it was really just a weather balloon... It wasn't. You know it wasn't. I don't know why I'm going down that rabbit hole. You don't need to go down that rabbit hole. The government suck at covering up UFOs is ultimately what I'm trying to say. These MJ-12 documents, whether they were false documents that were given to Bill to spread them like he did, hey, guess what? That worked and it worked well. It's still working. There are a ton of sites out there who say, without a doubt, 100%, the MJ-12 documents are real and ignore the facts that they're not. There's TV specials and movies and books and everything that say the same thing. But if they would just stop and look at the data, look at the evidence, look at the facts, they would come to the conclusion, again, in my opinion, that the MJ-12 documents, the Majestic 12 documents, the smoking gun of UFO documents, sadly, are fake. So, to wrap up everything... Nothing in the documents is all that surprising. The president talking about proof of UFOs would be great to have in an oddly released top secret document, but it's not necessary. There are so, so many witnesses to events that have included the president and UFOs that it's pretty much a given that presidents, governments, people in charge have known about the existence of UFOs and aliens visiting Earth for a very long time, we don't need this document to confirm it. What do you guys think? Do you think the MJ-12 documents are real? Do you think that Bill made them? Do you think they're a false flag from the government? Or do you think it's something completely different? Do you think 
Do you think that these documents are necessary for disclosure? Once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvig, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. I hope you guys liked this one. I know it was a very, very different episode. Very detail-oriented. A lot of names, a lot of dates, a lot of facts. I really hope you guys liked this one. I really, really liked researching this one because I always wondered about the Majestic 12 documents. These documents, like again, cursory examination, sound fantastic. Sound too good to be true because it is too good to be true. As I said, once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvik. This has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Hard vlog, the Asian man, the answer. Right, why you can't push